All right. So after the last year or so, I've had several women ask me if we could meet together and study the Bible together um, and just go through some of the stuff that I know and learn. And I would love to do that. If I could sit down with all of you guys and just meet you at the coffee shop and go through the Bible and talk about that, that would be like amazing, right? I would love to do that. But if you don't know, I'm a wife. I'm a homeschooling mom of two. I have a feisty and very busy uh, toddler. Um, And then I have this ministry that I love that requires my time. And right now I have someone come a couple times a week for a few hours so I can sneak away to a coffee shop and work on this stuff. And then when I don't have as much to work on, then I try to make doctor's appointments and eye appointments and stuff, which these are scratched, and I'm like eight months overdue for an eye check, and I'm like half blind. So that tells you how often I actually make appointments for myself. Isn't that amazing? Your kids get to the dentist. They have a little thing, a bump, and you're like, let's go to the doctor. And you're like, my arm's falling off. I really need to make an appointment. You know, it's just... So all that being said, I did want to do something in this area. And so this morning's message is a little bit different than I normally do, but I want to teach you guys how to study the Bible for yourself. I'm going to give you some of my tricks and some of my tips um, using resources. Explain kind of the inner workings of the process. You're going to learn some like really impressive words that you can impress your friends with, totally. So I know that's a big deal. Um, And my hope is, though, is that you'll kind of re-fall in love with reading the Bible and seeing that the layers to it will make it more um, exciting and fun for you. Uh, I worry sometimes that Christians today aren't reading their Bibles. They just... We just aren't. And with with your scriptures up on the screens in church, you don't even really need to own one because they handle that for you at church. Um, Bible reading isn't the same as a devotional. It's not the same as journaling. It's not the same as your Bible app, which I have the Bible app and I do plans and stuff. Um, But those are kind of like grabbing a granola bar in the afternoon when you're just a little hungry. They aren't meant to sustain you. They're not they're not going to give you all that you need to kind of get through your day or get through your situation. This book, it's like alive. I know that sounds weird. You know, it's not like moving around alive, but it's alive. It's going to speak to your current circumstances. God's going to use it to refresh your heart. He'll answer your questions in here. He'll give you a few more questions. Um, it's powerful. This, this, the words in here, will heal bodies, they'll break chains, it saves souls, it'll restore your mind. The truths in here shut down every lie of the enemy. But if you don't read it, then he just rolls over you like a steamroller with what he has to say about things. Um, It'll set you free, but you got to read it. We have to be in it. Um, We're like a generation that has a sickness that sort of keeps us in this sort of depressed Um, anxious fog, and there's this antidote that's really simple, but we're too busy. We're too busy to go get the antidote. So I can't overemphasize it enough. I'm hoping that this helps you guys this morning because it's really important that that we read this book. And I was talking to someone last night. They said just even just reading it, it's going to get into your spirit. If you're like, I'm not really getting anything out of it, your spirit is. It's getting something out of it. It's getting in you. So let's get into it. So the books of the Bible were originally written in a particular historical 
context. Um, the culture, political climate, agriculture, the social norms, the religion, um, they're all rooted in history, right? But it's still called the living word. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word is living and active. Um, and that's because the Bible has eternal relevance. Um, it has the ability to speak to anyone at all times, at any point, um, in any culture, no matter the situation. It speaks to you now, right? No matter where you are this morning, this book has something to offer you in your current circumstance, in the present time. Have you ever had it happen where there's a text from like hundreds and hundreds of years ago and God speaks it to you for your current situation and you know he's talking to you? That, only this book can do that. That's incredible. The way he talks through this book is amazing. He speaks to us through it. And I love when he does that. But we can't forget that God gave this book to followers in a very particular time in history. And he used human words to communicate it. And so because of that, each book or letter in the Bible is tied to and infused with a particular language and a particular culture. And so every time we read it, we're, we have to interpret it. Uh-oh, I got ice. Sorry. <laughs> I'll have to erase that part. To interpret is to give or provide the meaning of. Like an interpreter will take a foreign language and make it clear to you. Interpretation of a biblical text bridges the gap between its firm rooting in history and then our current circumstances, and for us today, and for future generations. And everyone who reads the Bible is an interpreter. We all bring to the text our own experiences, right? Our theological understanding or lack of understanding. We bring our own cultures. We bring our own preconceived ideas. Every time we come to a, a text, we kind of place all those on it. For example, when we hear the word lukewarm, in Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Christ to the church at Laodicea. We might picture a lukewarm believer versus an on-fire believer, right? So you either have to be on fire or cold or else he's going to spit you out or something. Because those, that's the type of terminology in our Christian language. So he's going to spit lukewarm believers out of his mouth. Well, those terms come from our culture. You might remember me teaching um, a couple years ago on the church at Laodicea. And the, the city where this church was located lacked a sufficient ply, supply of good water. And water was piped to the city from hot springs about four miles south, and it arrived lukewarm. Not only did it arrive lukewarm, the pipes that it came in on were all old and crusty with all these mineral deposits. And so the water that came through like, could make you nauseated when you'd drink it. North of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis, and it was famous for its hot springs. And they had the kind of minerals in it that made them very healing. The water was very healing to the body. Colossae was 10 miles into the Lycus Valley, and he had the, it had the supply of cold, pure water. So Laodicea, tucked in between these cities, it didn't have hot medicinal waters like Hierapolis, and it didn't have cold, refreshing waters like Colossae. 
It had this sort of janky aqueduct made of stone that provided tepid, warm, barely drinkable water. And it could help you survive, but you weren't going to thrive. It really wasn't going to help you beyond that. It wasn't healing or refreshing. So that text isn't about being on fire for Jesus um, or being a lukewarm Christian. This idea for being on fire for Jesus, that's something that came up with us, not back in his day. Um, But you've probably heard it preached that way. Um, In fact, when I give away this Bible dictionary later, I looked up Laodicea in here, and it says, according to the comments about the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation, this congregation consisted of lukewarm Christians. When that's not what's being said. So I was going to be like, use this comment, use this dictionary. And now I'm like, except for that. Because <laughs> I'm like, great, now I'm going to give them full stuff. It wasn't, that wasn't in their language to use that kind of wording. The church was being rebuked for not offering healing or refreshment to the body. Because when you read the whole story, they were complacent, rich, satisfied, and only took care of themselves. That's why they were being rebuked. Many scriptures are often misunderstood or abused as people kind of put their own language and beliefs on them without looking at the original reason they were written. Mormons will baptize the dead. There's snake handling cults. There are the verses that churches hold up that women cannot teach a man. Don't let them teach. And all of these claim to be supported by a text, right? Then we have situations where someone will take a text and apply it literally today. Like there's a text in Deuteronomy 22. A woman must not wear men's clothing. And there are churches that will argue, so a woman can't wear pants or shorts because those are men's clothing, right? Especially in the homeschool community, you will see that a lot if you go to the homeschool conventions. Um, But they don't take literally the other items in the list. Like, oh, stoning a woman whose parents can't prove her virginity to the city elders. (laughs) Like, that would be our mayor, right? Got to prove your virginity to the mayor. We're going to stone you. That's in Deuteronomy right there. Or putting tassels on your clothes. They just pull out this verse and say, oh, we can't wear men's clothing. It's like, oh, oh, you can choose, I guess. You know, it gets really dangerous when you're just picking and choosing. So these directives are rooted in and dependent on the context of the verse. That's why it's important when we study the Bible to ask the question, what is the context here? What's the context? And we're going to get to that in a minute. The three basic steps I take when I approach a passage are, number one, I pray. Number two, I find out what the text originally meant, which is called exegesis. And I'll get into that. I'm going to break this all down for you guys. And number three, I apply the original intended meaning to us or myself today, and that's called hermeneutics. And again, I'll get into that. Number one, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to go before you when you're going to read your Bible and reveal anything he wants to say to you. Ask him, show me, show me something out of this. Teach me something. Speak to me. Make sure you invite him into your Bible study. He's a counselor and a guide. He can reveal God's heart to you and direct you to what he wants you to see. He knows what's going on in your life right now, even more layers than you do, and he's going to pull things out specifically for you. So always pray first. Secondly, find out what the text originally meant. 
who it was for, what was going on, what was the culture like. And so ask these questions. What happened? Who was involved? Where did it take place? When did it take place? And why did it happen? And the work of finding the original context is called exegesis. And if you miss some of that, I'll make sure you guys get any information that you need. Um, Exegesis is the study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. And that's going to be really important, you guys. And it's actually really fun to find out. Um, In exegesis, we try to hear the word as the original audience would have heard it. This helps us to find out what the original intent was. Um, And you don't have to be an expert or a preacher to exegete. Just saying, back in the day, we used to not have cell phones. We used to have the phone on the wall with a long cord that would get all stretched out and twisted up and you'd spin it around and then you could dial popcorn and all sorts of stuff, right? If anybody remembers that. Um, The phone on the wall. Um, Back in the day, you had to wait a week until your show came on again and you couldn't just binge watch on Netflix. Back in the day, we used to have to use whiteout. If you were typing and you messed it up, you'd white it out and then go back or you'd backspace with the whiteout tape and have to do the same letters, right? If you're young, you're like, what? That's all right. Okay, that's exegetical work. Back in the day, a denarius was a whole day's wage, right? That's exegetical work. Um, And the internet is a great resource for exegetical study, but I'm going to give you a little heads up. Um, There are plenty of resources online um, that are full of experts that are happy to tell you what certain passages mean. And it's like you're always going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you navigate. Um, Often secondary sources are using other secondary sources. For example, Matthew 19.24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So you can do a search online and find sermons and notes explaining how there was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. And when, when a camel would come up to it, it wouldn't fit with all of its bags and supplies on it, and it would, you'd have to remove them, and the camel would have to lower down to get it through the gate. Okay, so this is a preacher's dream. Right? He's like, get rid of your baggage, get rid of your riches, drop them off here if you'd like, you know? (laughs) Just give us your riches, and then you could make it through the needle's gate. The only problem is, there never was such a gate at any time in the history of Israel. There was no needle's gate. It was just an expression to explain something that was impossible. In fact, in oral tradition, there's also a saying, an elephant can't fit through the eye of a needle. You know, it was just an idiom for something that was impossible. So you can't really go online and just accept everything that you read. It's possible some of your Sunday school stories might be a little bit corrupt, which I find exciting because I love to find out what really happened. You know, I love to find out. I like to dig a little bit. So what do you do? You first use your own abilities, and then you're going to go to secondary resources. 
respected experts, solid, reputable people, um, like I thought Nelson was. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, I'm sure the rest of it is great. Um, but, uh, and I'm going to have a list for you at the end that you can take a picture of, and I'll put it on the, I'll email it out and everything. The key to exegesis is reading the text carefully and asking the right questions. There are two basic lines of questioning that you want to pursue when you're going to do your Bible study. They're relating to context, which is my favorite, and content. Questions of content are my favorite because they really open up the text. They, they give you a whole different view of what's going on. This is the part that all the Bible nerds in here will love. Um, holler, are you Bible nerds? That's me. Um, and it's really some of the most easy information to get. Under context, we have historical context and literary context. You guys are like in Seminary 101 today. I'm loving this. Some of you are like, I didn't know I was going to class. I still got good stuff. All right, historical context is going to differ from book to book, right? It's going to cover the time and culture of that book, the author, the audience, what was going on, what were their customs, where were they located geographically, like the church at Laodicea. That's really important where it was located to factor that in to what Jesus said. It's also going to cover the occasion and the purpose of the letter. What was going on in Rome? What was going on in Israel or the church that prompted the words to be written? That's important to know. So to answer questions of historical context, you're going to need outside help. Uh, you can find great one-volume Bible dictionaries, like this one that I just got, um, except for Laodicea. Um, there's a book called Manners and Customs in the Bible. There's commentaries on a particular book. Um, so I brought a bunch of this up, so with your discussion questions, you guys can come up and grab a book and just kind of look at it, look through them. Um, a great example of historical context is understanding the religious culture in Ephesus when Paul told Timothy, don't allow a woman to teach. It's really important to know what was happening in Ephesus. So hundreds of years before, Ephesus was the epicenter of a female-dominated culture that worshipped what they called the mother of the gods. Um, when the Greeks immigrated to Ephesus, they called her by the name of Artemis, their goddess of fertility. All the, all the priests were women. A man could only be a priest if he renounced his masculinity completely and was castrated. It was completely female-dominated in an aggressive and violent Way, which, by the way, when it says don't allow a woman to have authority over a man, the, it's not authority like in leadership. It's act, the word is actually pretty violent and strong and abusive. It's, it's authentic. That's not on my notes, but you can look that up. It's, it's really eye-opening. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus loomed over Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because it was so gigantic. It hosted prostitutes, and orgies. It was just crazy. One person said, there was no other Greco-Roman metropolis in the empire whose body, soul, and spirit could so belong to a particular deity as did Ephesus to her patron goddess, Artemis. They loved Artemis. The, the idol of Artemis had all these things on her, and they don't know if it was breasts or bull testicles no, I'm not kidding. Or eggs. They haven't been able to figure it out yet, but she has numerous amounts of them, and they're all sort of point to this weird sort of 
fertility and castration motif, right? So goddess worship was such a large part of life in Ephesus that when Paul arrived on the scene, their economy took a dive because people stopped buying Artemis idols, and that's what they sold, these silver idols. So it's impossible to look at the text, don't allow a woman to teach and have authority over a man, without acknowledging the reality that there were tensions involving the female-led Artemis cult with false teaching. So Paul's like, don't let the false teachers, don't let the women come in because they've been learning a bunch of weird stuff from that place. So he's talking to Timothy at his church in Ephesus, not the church universal amen for any woman that loves to teach like me. So, okay, literary context. That means finding out the meaning of the text in relation to the verses around it. Your text can only have clear meaning if it's understood within the context of the full chapter and the full book. You try to trace the author's train of thought. Where was he coming, where was he coming from? What did he say? Where is he going with this thought? It keeps you from pulling a verse from here and there and piecing together your own theology because you have to follow what he was saying and why. Um, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you take verses out of context, right? It's frustrating to be taken out of context. If you're in an argument with somebody or a discussion and they say, you said this, and it's like, no, you're totally taking me out of context. You don't want that either. You, it's like, that's not what I was saying before I said it and after. You got to take the whole thing in to really understand what I was saying. So many context, context questions can be answered just by reading the chapters before and after the one you're studying. So John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who's the thief? Satan, right? Except it's not Satan. So let's read the verses leading up to John 10.10. 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech, Joseph spoke, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus was talking about the false teachers and the failed leaders that had come before him. He was talking about Pharisees. He was talking about them, and he's like, no, I'm the door. Everyone that came before me, they weren't really trying to lead the sheep, and the sheep couldn't follow him. So yes, does Satan come to steal, steal kill, and destroy? Yes, he does. But that's not what John 10.10 10 is saying. And you will find it in books and sermons, in reputable books. Someone that I really respect, I just read, that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm like, John 10.10, 10, and they reference that text. But in context, that's not what Jesus was saying. So it's just, 
And to me, again, that's fun to discover stuff like that. Um, and you'll have the power to, to do that. Is there music playing? <laughs> Had a little background. Um, so for your discussion questions, you guys, if your table wants to come up and grab one of these books, actually in Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, I, I put a post-it under Ephesus, and then I marked it where you can read about the Temple of Artemis, which is the background for, why, for Timothy. So come up and grab a book and look at it. Thank you so much for coming and for doing like a Bible study one-on-one with me.